0: The Jodcast, open bracket, witty comment, close bracket. With Guillaume Voisin, Yun Song Lee, George Bendo, Crispin Agar, Hong Ying Cheng, Mira Andrean Saralaz, Jake Staver Morgan, and Emma Alexander. The Jodcast, February 2019, extra edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Crispin, and joining me in the studio today are Hong Ying and Mira.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm Hong Ying. This is the first time I'm doing a Jodcast, and I'm a second year PhD student here in Manchester.
0: Thank you.
2: Hi, I'm Miura. I'm doing a master's here in Manchester, and it is also my first time to present that the
0: Fantastic. In the show this time, we answer your astronomical questions in our regular Ask an Astronomer segment, and we interview Leon Koopmans about epoch of reionization studies with the 21-centimeter line and gravitational lensing. But first, before all that, Jake Stubber morgan talks to Ben Stappers in this month's Jodbyte. We are joined this morning by Professor
3: Ben Stappers of our very own Georgia Bank Centre for Astrophysics. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. You are head of the Pulsars and Time Domain Astrophysics group here at JBCA. For the benefit of our listeners, could you explain a little bit about what that entails, what areas
4: of physics that covers? Sure. We formerly were the pulsar group, but we realized that there's a lot of really very interesting science that is related to the techniques of pulsars. And so we've expanded that into including fast transients, so things like fast radio bursts, and even slow transients, which uh, might be x-ray binaries or things like that. Plus, we've also recognized the uh, overlap that we have with people working in the areas of planetary astrophysics, and also in terms of NOVI. So that's why we've included Professor Tim O'Brien and Eamon Kerrins as well.
3: So if it varies on what we might call human timescales, we want to know, would that be a fair assessment?
4: Human timescales? Yeah, I guess I think I usually think of it as nanoseconds to hours.
3: You've been on the show a couple of times before talking about your research into pulsars, but that was a few years back, and since then you have now formed the MIRTRAP Consortium based here at JBCA. Could you tell us a little bit about that, what you're up to?
4: Sure. MIRTRAP is a European Research Council-funded project through an advanced grant. The main aims of the programme come from the two halves of the name. So the MIR part comes from MeerKat, the SKA Pathfinder Telescope that's being built in South Africa. And the TRAP part stands for Transients and Pulsars. So the idea is to carry out commensal observations with the MeerKat Telescope, to try and find new radio transients from basically zero seconds up to, to one second. There is a sister project called Thundercat, which looks at sort of seconds to longer timescales. And then we're also looking for pulsars in that commensally obtained data. Okay. You've mentioned the phrase commensal surveys here, which
3: is, as I understand it, a key part to this whole undertaking. What do you mean by that?
4: So basically... We don't get any actual time of our own on the telescope. What we rely on is the kindness of the people operating the so-called large survey proposals or large survey projects, I should say. Those people will get given time on the telescope. And the idea is, is that we simply piggyback on those observations. So they have kindly said we can look at all the things that vary rapidly in the data that they are acquiring. By doing that, we optimise the science return from any given hour spent observing the sky. Okay, well that that sounds like an effective approach. Yeah, we think so. You know, it relies on us providing all of our own instrumentation, all of our own software, um, but we work very closely, the Meerkat team, to interact and make sure that our systems are able to talk to their systems. So you are having to
3: develop your own systems in-house to be able to do the science that you want.
4: Yeah, that's right. So we, in July last year, delivered a very large supercomputer to the location of the Meerkat telescope in the Karoo in South Africa. It's in a very nice building that they have there. One of the best server rooms I've ever been in, actually. And that supercomputer, it consists of a large number of compute nodes, graphical processor units, And that will process the data in real time. So that's part of the crucial aspect of this is the data rates because we're spending maybe of the order of in total something like 20,000 hours on Sky over the next few years. There's no way we can keep all that data. So we have to process it in real time. And to do that, we need a very large computer.
3: So it's a question of storage more than anything.
4: Yeah, it's just not feasible for us to
3: store the raw data. So one thing we've not talked about yet is Meerlicht, which is another telescope that is working with Meerkat. Why does an array of radio telescopes need a small optical telescope to help it out?
4: Yeah, that's a very good question. What the aim of the Meerlicht Meerkat combination is, is that if you're looking for transient sources, and either through the MeerTrap project or our sister projects, as I mentioned, Thundercat, I already mentioned, but there's another one called Trap'em, which as you can imagine stands sense for transients and pulsars with meerkat, those projects are all looking for things that vary. So we're trying to find either new variable stars or new transients, or one-off events, something that might explode, or accrete, or something like that. Usually the evidence for that is not restricted to a single wavelength. So if you see something interesting in the radio, there's a strong chance that there's something interesting happening at other wavelengths. And so one way to see that is to have an optical telescope that's slaved to the radio telescope. So wherever Meerkat will be pointing at nighttime, Meerlicht will be pointing at the same piece of sky. It has a field of view which matches very nicely with the field of view of the Meerkat telescope. And so if we see anything interesting in either the optical or the radio, we can cross-reference and immediately see whether something interesting has happened. So one of the really interesting things from the trap point of view is we're interested in the fast radio bursts, these very short duration events, and they are highly dispersed. So what that means is that as they pass through the interstellar medium, and perhaps even the intergalactic medium, they are delayed so that the lower frequencies arrive later than the higher frequencies. So what that means is that any fast radio burst that we detect... Not only did it happen the light travel time ago, but it actually happened the dispersive time delay ago. Even if we could detect that transient and react immediately, there's the potential that if there was any prompt optical emission that went with that outburst, that would have been in the past. So we couldn't trigger a telescope to go and follow it up. The beauty of Meerlicht is Meerlicht was already looking. So effectively, we can look back in time and see if there was any associated optical emission. With this to fast catch radio it burst. Yeah, exactly.
3: Do we have any ideas as to what this optical counterpart might look like to an FRB?
4: Well, no, I don't think we do. I mean, there are some theories. The idea was proposed quite some time back that by Sir Martin Rees, for example, um, that uh, there could be prompt optical emission associated with neutron star neutron star mergers, for example. And so if fast radio bursts are potentially associated with those events, then you might also see optical emission. And certainly part of the argument is that the radio, while it's really, really important, actually doesn't trace the energetics very well. So most radio emission is is weak in a sense. And so if these are very cataclysmic events, perhaps, if they've destroyed something or they're massive accretion events, then there should be a lot of energy released at other wavelengths. And so we might hope to see that come out in the optical or the infrared or somewhere. So that's why you have this optical telescope working with, yeah? Yes,
3: exactly. So I went back through and looked at the stats formula, and it does look very impressive. It's a 100 megapixel camera they've got on the back of this thing.
4: Yeah, it's, it's super impressive. I mean, the images are just unbelievable when you realize that I think there's the, one of the launch images, so the first light images, has more than a million stars in it. That is impressive. <laughs> yeah.
3: There because you were at the inauguration of the Meerlicht telescope in South Africa, weren't you?
4: I was, yeah. I was actually lucky enough to go to both the inauguration of Meerlicht and Meerkat. Really, very, very amazing events. It was just a huge privilege to be part of the sort of transformation that's going on uh, in terms of the science there.
3: So, straying away from the science for just a second, what are those events like? Is there a bit where the PI cuts a big ribbon with a pair of novelty scissors?
4: In both cases, it's not the PI that gets to cut the ribbon. In the case of the MeerKAT telescope, it was the deputy president of South Africa, because it's a massive project. And in the case of Mierlecht, it was a representative from the ministry who got to do that. So yes, the, uh, the PI stands by uh, beaming, of course, being extremely happy that their instrument is now open. But the privilege of cutting the ribbon, as it were, goes to uh, important officials. I
3: suppose that makes sense, because we had doctors Bernie Faneroff and Rob Adam, who, of course, are both involved with the SKA on the show a while back, and they talked about the importance of the SKA to South Africa and African astronomy as a whole. So it makes sense that they should be involved in that.
4: Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, without their input and their support and their financial support, these things just wouldn't happen. So it's absolutely essential that we uh, give them the honour that they deserve for that Uh, And so
3: another thing that Rob Adam mentioned at the Fanrof Lecture, I believe it was, was the importance of field-testing prototypes for big scientific projects like this. And both Meerkat and MeerLicht fit into this philosophy quite well, because they are both precursor telescopes. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about that, what the future might bring for these projects?
4: I can try, certainly. I I 100% support what you mentioned that uh, Rob Adam said. In fact, Meerkat itself is, I think, now the third in their line of prototypes. They had a single dish as a demonstrator first, then they built CAT7, and then they went from CAT7 to Meerkat. And Meerkat itself is, it's a precursor, but it's also going to become part of the SKA mid-telescope. So mid meaning mid-frequency range. And so it's been an incredibly important demonstrator and technology proving ground for a lot of the SKA technology. And Mierlicht itself is the first of a series of telescopes that make up the array of telescopes, optical telescopes in this case, distributed around the world called Black Gem. And Black Gem has as its goal to follow up gravitational wave events. We know we've already seen from the ne- one neutron star-neutron star merger that has happened so far. Not the only one that's happened, of course, is the uh, only one we've detected so far. There was associated multi-wavelength emission. And the idea of Black Gem is to follow up many more of these gravitational wave events, because typically they're so poorly localized that you need to be able to look at lots of parts of the sky to be able to see if there's any optical emission.
3: So the Black Gem team, it sounds like are dealing with a similar problem to yourself, trying to follow up events that are poorly localized on the sky, that go off suddenly.
4: Yeah, that's right. For us, actually, fortunately, because Meerkat is an array of radio telescopes itself. Our localization is actually quite good. We still have a bit of a localization problem, but in our case we're trying to localize things to within a location in a galaxy, whereas LIGO, for example, has many degrees of sky in which the events might have occurred. So, slightly different scales but similar problems.
3: Both of these telescopes are now on sky. Have you found any particularly new
4: or exciting transients so far? Yeah, so unfortunately, we aren't yet while the telescopes are on Sky, we aren't currently on Sky yet with the MirTRAP project. We have, as I mentioned, we delivered uh, some hardware in the middle of last year, spent the last couple of months testing that hardware, making sure it's all working, developing our pipelines, rolling our pipelines out, and interfacing with the MeerKat system. As you can imagine, a system of 64 dishes, large correlators, very sophisticated and a large amount of data is flowing around. So interfacing with them is is challenging and that's what we've been working on, but we're hoping to get on Sky uh, soon. Okay. Well, I'm sure we will all be keeping an eye out for that.
3: So it's this building up of infrastructure, which I presume will pave the ground for the SKA when it is eventually completed.
4: Yeah, that's the idea. Certainly we are benefiting here in Manchester and in the UK From the work that we're doing for the SKA as well so certainly we're involved in designing and developing things for the SKA and that's informing what we're doing on Meerkat and then when we can actually take what we learn in the field and turn that back to inform our design so yeah there's a nice synergy there between what we're doing in the field and what we're doing in the design room as it were
3: yeah that makes a lot of sense because it is difficult to overstate the hopes and expectations that are being placed on the SKA when it does eventually come online
4: i don't know where you want me to go with that one
3: (laughs) (laughs) it's okay you don't have to go anywhere with that i mean here in exoplanets we have our own golden goose in the shape of james webb so we are also guilty of that to an extent
4: i mean i think you've got to recognize that the SKA is an ambitious project it has a lot of different and varied science goals and I think it will be an absolute revolution in radio astronomy but all of these projects are incredibly challenging. But it sounds like you and your team are well placed to help make that happen. Well we are certainly keen to be involved we have been involved in the design process and we look forward to being involved as we move into the construction phase if that's possible.
3: I've got one last fun little question to close this out with so you're still obviously very interested in pulsars and there's always a pulsar of the week discussed at Jodrell Bank when the group all heads out there on Tuesdays. Do you have a favourite pulsar?
4: And if so, which one? I probably do. It's simply for the fact that it was a large fraction of what I did in my PhD thesis. So that would be PSR J2051-0827, which is an eclipsing binary millisecond pulsar. So it's one of these pulsar systems which the pulsar itself is rotating very rapidly. It has a very small companion star. Something like 0.025 solar masses is the the minimum mass. And it eclipses the radio emission from the pulsar for approximately 10% of the orbital period. It's part of the whole spiders category of pulsars that your listeners may have heard about. These are either known as the Black Widow systems, which is what 2051-0827 falls into the Black Widow class because of its low mass companion. And then there are the red-back systems, which have somewhat higher mass companion stars. Yeah, it goes all the way back to the an object from my thesis. Oh, okay.
3: There you have it, meerkats and black widows.
4: Yes, astronomers are clearly firmly rooted in the ground when it comes to their naming systems <laughs> as opposed to in the sky.
3: Well, I think that seems like a reasonable place to wrap up. So, Professor, thank you very much for your time this morning. Oh, you're very welcome. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thanks for that, Jake. Now, Emma Alexander interviews Leon Koopmans about EOR studies with the 21-centimetre line and gravitational lensing.
5: I'm here with Professor Leon Koopmans from the Capitan Institute for Astronomy at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. So I believe that you did your bachelor's and master's and also your, um, uh, your PhD there at Cronigan and you then moved over here to Manchester to do um, where you were a postdoctoral fellow. You also had postdoctoral positions at Caltech and Baltimore in, in the US and now you're back at the University of Cronigan as a professor. So thank you very much for joining us here today on the Jodcast. You're welcome. So first of all, uh, yesterday here in Manchester, uh, you gave a brilliant colloquium about the 21cm hydrogen line and its application in the study of the cosmic dawn and epoch of reionisation. Could you please describe what the 21cm line is for our listeners and how you use it in your research?
6: So the 21cm line is a very rare line that is emitted by neutral hydrogen. So it's a very weak line, but neutral hydrogen in the early universe is everywhere. So even despite it being very weak, it's basically everywhere. So it can add up together to quite a strong line. But despite that, it's still very, very difficult to find. But if we can find it, right, we can actually study the early universe uh, in great detail. So that's sort of the thing that we are, we are after. But the 21 centimeter line is, is basically as the name says, right, a line that's emitted at 21 centimeter. But of course, when we observe it today, it's actually like right, stretched up, let's say, because the universe is expanding to several metres in wavelength, but we always call it the 21-centimetre line.
5: So what kind of telescopes do you use to observe this 21-centimetre line? So we're talking in in the radio regime, and obviously, when you stretch the 21-centimetre line out more, then you go to an even lower frequency. So what kind of instruments are you using to observe this line?
6: So you say correctly that we use a radio telescope. But radio telescopes come in many different forms everywhere on on the earth. They're radio telescopes. some of them are dishes. but these days we're using what we call aperture rays. So they are sort of flattened out dishes that receive, let's say the radiation from the universe it's 21 centimeter radiation and they are actually electronically stored and then combined in a computer. So what in the past was being done by the by dish, by combining, let's say, just mechanically the, uh, the signal in what was called the front end. Uh, nowadays, this can all be done electronically. So that makes a telescope much more flexible than a traditional DISH telescope. And we need that flexibility to actually find, uh, find this signal. So one example is, for example, the LOFAR, the low-frequency array in the Netherlands, but it's actually spread around uh, Europe and even the UK has one of the LOFAR stations. We're using that, for example, in our own research. But there are also other sort of types of radio telescopes that are being used around the globe.
5: So when you're looking for this 21-centimetre uh, line, what aspects of it um, are you looking out for with, with these radio telescopes? And what, what kind of science can you get out of studying this line?
6: So we're actually looking both spatially. So we look at how this, at least that's the aim ultimately, to, to look how this uh, this gas is distributed in the early universe. But we can also, because it is a line, we can tune these radio telescopes at different frequencies. So we can actually look back in time and therefore also in distance. So we can actually build up a three-dimensional view of how this gas is distributed. Now, this gas largely follows what we call dark matter initially, right, so it is more or less distributed like that. But when the first stars come and the first galaxies form and maybe the first black holes, then the properties of the gas and how it emits this 21 centimeter line changes. So by looking at how this gas is distributed and how it changes as function of let's say time, evolution in the universe, we can learn about these first stars, about the first black holes, maybe about what we call quasars, so supermassive black holes, how the gas is being heated, how there is feedback from these stars, etc. So that's what we ultimately aim to do: is to to learn, of course, about this very early phase, in particular about the first stars and, and black holes that formed uh, about well a few hundred million years after the Big Bang.
5: And when you're looking for this signal, how how do you recognise that it is the signal that you're looking for? What kind of characteristic does it have?
6: Well, that, that's a very good question and also a very difficult one because I mean detecting this signal is extremely difficult, as I as I said before, because the galactic foregrounds are extremely large. So this is emission from our own Milky Way. This needs to be removed. Instrumental effects need to be removed, and with current instrument, the signal would still be below the noise. So you do use very specific statistical techniques to extract this from the noise. Now, once you have this uh, signal, you might say, okay, we've detected something, but somebody might say, well, you haven't done your job properly. So how do you actually try to prove that this is correct? So in our case, we look at at different fields, for example, we say, okay, we look in, in this direction, we look in another direction. And if we don't find a similar statistical signal, then we have to go back to the drawing board and, and think again. Now you can also compare it, of course, with other instruments that are being used around the world. And of course, those should also largely agree because we look at areas on the sky which is so large that they should be behaving very similar, whether you're in, let's say, in the Northern Hemisphere observing or in the Southern Hemisphere observing, that signals should be more or less uh, uh, similar. Now, this is one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is with techniques which are called cross correlations. You could, for example, say I have a 21 centimeter signal. But, for example, where there are emitting sources, the 21 centimeter, the neutral hydrogen, is slowly disappearing. So by what we call cross correlating observations of these radiating sources with that signal, you should be able to measure that there is some sort of correlation or sometimes anti-correlation between these two signals which have been op- obtained with completely different techniques. And so there are various ways of uh, of validating that you actually made a discovery but it's a very valid uh, question indeed.
5: So you mentioned that there are lots of different um, experiments in, de- in different places that are, that are doing these kind of studies. Uh, you, you mentioned LoFAR here in Europe. Uh, can you give any o- other examples um, around the world of these kind of experiments? And you know, are they similar to each other? Are there any differences between them?
6: Yeah. So there the are many of these experiments, uh, and the, the nice thing is they're not all doing the same thing. We are right. We have never discovered this yet. Right. We're all still in that in that quest. for for discovery. And so we also not necessarily know a priori what is the best way of getting to a detection. So with LOFAR, we have, for example, somewhat larger stations and we have lots of collecting area. But because our stations are somewhat larger, we also look at the smaller area in the sky. So on the one hand, that's good. On the other hand, looking at more of the sky is better but you have finite resources. So if you go, for example, to an experiment, which is being done in Western Australia with the MWA, they look at a much larger area in the sky, but with less collecting area. So it's a different type of strategy, right? You try one and versus the other. And then there's the really extreme case of, for example, paper in South Africa, which has the largest field of view, but the smallest collecting area. So there's these sort of different strategies that people try out in different ways of processing the data. And I think that's a good thing uh, to do. So there are actually none of these experiments are, are identical. They're all quite different.
5: And uh, earlier on this year, as we were, as we're recording this interview, uh, there was a, a paper published from the edges team um, that um, shows apparently a, a detection um, along these lines. Um, could you go into a little bit about what that experiment was doing, and um, maybe your thoughts on it as well?
6: So this is actually a very different uh, approach, and it's actually measuring something very different from what the so-called aperture rays or radio telescopes interferometers are measuring. So it actually, m- the telescope that we are using don't measure the, the overall brightness of the uh, of the 21 centimeter line of neutral hydrogen, but it, the, it measures the fluctuations. So the edges uh, result is actually measuring that, what we call global signal. So it measures the total power emitted by this 21, in this 21 centimeter line. And there are predictions that if you look, uh, let's say back in time, that there's a particular shape to how this, this power, let's say evolves with redshift and therefore also with cosmic time. And so EDGES has been designing and carrying out their own experiment also for almost a decade. And recently it claimed a detection of this signal. Now, this signal is so-called absorption of the cosmic microwave background in the 21 centimeter line. Now, the amazing thing or the surprising thing there was that this this absorption feature is much, much stronger than any theoretical model has has predicted. Actually, it's so strong that you need some sort of uh, more well exotic physics or explanations to to um, uh, to explain this result. Which has led to a lot of of course, very interesting theoretical papers, um, but there are also maybe still some issues, right, with whether this signal is real, whether we can believe it, and there are parallel. I know, for example, of one experiment currently going on as we as we speak uh, that tries to um, uh, to confirm or refute this uh, particular detection. But if it's true, it would be extremely spectacular, of course.
5: And uh, so we've got the um, Square Kilometre Array, hopefully, will be coming uh, online within the next few years. It's currently in development. Um, What will it do for these kind of studies in the future?
6: Yeah, so the Square Kilometre Array is almost 10 times as powerful as, for example, LOFAR. So the Square Kilometre Array, in this case, SKA Low, which is the part that's going to be built in Western Australia, is in some sense, very looks very similar to to, to LOFAR. It has stations which are roughly thirty or forty meters in size, so it has very similar field of view on the sky, but it's ten times more sensitive. So and it has many many more stations as well. So that means that the images it makes are going to be much better in some sense. They they will have less artifacts, uh, and they will go much deeper. So what you can do with the square kilometer array. Is no longer do these these detections or measurements statistically, but you can actually make images of the neutral hydrogen, and then in the later phases, this neutral hydrogen, as I mentioned, is being reionized. So you will start seeing bubbles, and you, it becomes like a Swiss cheese. You have bubbles in there that grow slowly over time and eats the entire cheese. So with the SKA, you can actually image those bubbles and see that happening as uh, as you go along in time. So I think that will be the most spectacular part of the SKA. Now, of course, we can never predict, right? We have never detected it, so we don't know what we're going to discover, what SKA will discover. But I think the real transformational thing of the SKA is that we can start making those images, whereas until then, we'll have to do with statistical measurements.
5: And what kind of things would you like to see um, in this field over the next few years? And What are you going to be involved with yourself personally?
6: Now, first of all, the first thing I would like is detection, a believable detection. Maybe edges has done it in the global signal, but of course with these interferometers, I would like to see a detection also of the fluctuations. That would be the first thing Uh, I would be happy, right? And then of course, the next thing would be quantifying quantifying this this signal in greater detail. As I mentioned, how is it distributed spatially? How does it evolve uh, over cosmic time? Now, that that would be fantastic. This is, of course, what we've been trying to do with LOFAR over the last many, many years. But there are many other exciting things uh, on the horizon besides SKA. There are, for example, new experiments being set up. One of them is called Nanofar in France, which is a very, very large collecting area system. But it focuses on the somewhat lower frequency. So it is actually much more sensitive than LOFAR to low frequencies, but it really focuses on that. And then you can go to the so-called cosmic dawn era, and it, it will be sensitive enough to do this. Now, the more sort of other interesting things by going into space, right? In on the Earth, you have the ionosphere. The ionosphere distorts these signals. By going into space, you avoid uh, these sort of distortions, and you might even dream about observing the so-called dark ages, which is even higher redshift earlier in the universe. But the signal is weaker and the foregrounds are even stronger. So, you need a very, very sensitive experiment in space, not being distorted by the ionosphere. So, my ultimate dream is if you say, right, if you would give me a bag of money and build something, I would probably build an array somewhere in space, far away from the Earth or on the backside of the moon or in orbit around the moon to do these types of experiments. So if you ask me about my dreams, that is my
5: dream. (laughs) Well, fingers crossed that we'll um, get something along those lines in the next few years then. Uh, So moving on to something a little bit different, um, I believe you also do some research into gravitational lensing. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, What exactly, well, I suppose what exactly gravitational lensing is for our listeners that aren't familiar with it, and what kind of work that you do in this field?
6: Yes, so I, I have two research lines. One is, of course, reorganization. The other one is, is gravitational lensing. So, and in particular, strong gravitational lensing. So what it means is basically if you take a massive galaxy in, in, in the universe or ma- any massive object, Einstein has told us that space and time around it are distorted. So just like right, my glasses, right, try to correct distortions in my eyes, Right? A massive object causes a distortion of something that is behind it. Now, if the distortion is strong enough, you might be able to see that object twice or four times, and then it's called strong lensing. So in particular, I study these kind of strong lenses on galaxy scales, trying to use these multiply imaged background sources to make statements about what matter there is in these galaxies, in particular dark matter. Right. We know that galaxies from other things, like rotation curves and, and galaxy dynamics, that much of the mass in a galaxy is dark dark matter, like in the entire universe. But we don't know exactly how it's distributed, how much is there in galaxies, and even more interesting, how it is structured on very small scales. For example, there are theories that predict very dark halos, in the halos all around, around uh, massive galaxies like our own Milky Way, but they're purely dark. There's no gas in them. And hence, how do we, have, how do we see them, right? One, the only way actually of seeing them is via gravity, any particular via gravitational lensing. So a large part of my research is to use gravitational lensing to say something about the dark matter in these galaxies on larger, but also on smaller and smaller scales.
5: And what kind of telescopes are you using to observe these gravitational lenses? Is it still radio telescopes or do you look in other wavelengths?
6: So historically, when I did my PhD, I used radio telescopes because in those days, finding lenses was the easiest with radio telescopes. Um, And I still use radio telescopes, uh, or maybe I should be more precise. My students use them. Uh, these days, uh, but mostly for follow-up. But most of the lenses actually um, nowadays are found in optical and infrared surveys. That is just because the nature of the surveys in these last 20 years has changed. I think again coming back to the square kilometer array, I think it will turn back to to radio lenses. Uh, But we use, once we have found these lenses, we're doing for example a very large survey now with with the V the VST uh, telescope, we do uh, uh, the Kit survey and finding lenses in there, then in general we try to use any telescope we can get our hands on to do follow-up. So this could be ALMA, this could be uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, anything that gives us high resolution is good enough for us. And uh, because these lenses in general are very small, they're a couple of arc seconds on the sky, so you need high spatial resolution to make anything uh, make any useful images from them.
5: So what what kind of things um, do you hope that gravitational lenses will, will tell us about dark matter because it's still something that we don't actually know that much about, right?
6: That's true. so dark matter is is it's something we call dark matter because I mean as the word says it's dark we can can't see it, it doesn't emit anything. The reason why we, we we actually know about it is because of gravity. So it has gravity, its mass, it behaves like other mass in terms of its gravitational field, but what it is, whether it's a particle or maybe something we still don't know about, that's that's a completely open question. So But there are sort of theories which we call cold dark matter theories, which work extremely well. If we, it's a sort of empirical theory. You say there is a particle out there. It's non-relativistic. Let's see what happens in the universe. If we assume that and we let it evolve in our computer simulations. Now then we can explain what we see on large scales in the universe quite accurately. It works extremely well, but it starts to sort of falter and go wrong on smaller and smaller scales. Now you can argue this might be because right you have gas and baryons and stars and that's all complex and so we can't disentangle these uh, these effects. Now there is one very nice prediction of the so-called cold dark matter theory, and that is that it, as I mentioned before, forms these sort of very small clumps on smaller and smaller scales. Now this is very hard to get rid of in those uh, in those theories. This is a very very clean prediction where lensing can make a very unique uh, uh, statement. If we see those things, cold dark matter is there. If we don't see them, dark matter might still be there, but it's certainly not going to be cold. So one of the questions we're trying to answer is to, to, to measure how many of those small substructures there are, for example, in the halos or along the line of sight to these strong lenses and then simply compare those numbers with the predictions from these cold dark matter models. If we see them, we can say, OK, the theory works, at least to the mass regime where we're measuring things. If we don't see them, we might have to alter our ideas about what dark matter is. Now, there are alternative theories like warm dark matter, fuzzy dark matter, self-interacting dark matter, etc., and they all predict different levels of this substructure. So this is the first goal: is simply go out, try to measure it, and then compare them to the theoretical prediction. So, so the statement would be about what is the nature of the dark matter. Maybe even more than whether dark matter is there, because there are also, let's say, other observational evidences for for dark matter that don't come from from gravitational lensing.
5: And uh, moving on from gravitational lensing, is there anything else that you're involved in at all in, in the astronomical world? Or is there anything else that maybe you're not working in yourself, but you're, you're finding interesting in astronomy at the moment?
6: Well, I'm, I'm interested in, in a lot of things. Uh, so and and the nice thing, and, and I've seen this before, uh, also my colleagues, right? I started off in gravitational lensing and I ended up in also doing reorganization, and I've seen this in several of my colleagues from 20 years ago that have taken that same path. The beauty is that it has many commonalities in the techniques that we're using in the mathematical framework. So I'm also very interested in those kind of aspects, right? What what can you squeeze out of data? For example, we've done a lot of thinking about Bayesian analyses, for example. One thing which I had never even dreamed of becoming knowledgeable about is for example the ionosphere. The ionosphere is something that uh, is really bothering us obviously in these uh, uh, 21 centimeter experiments just because we are observing at very low frequencies. So we've written many papers about the ionosphere and this is certainly something that I became interested in but never thought I would be interested in.
5: Could, could you actually go into a little bit more detail about how the ionosphere does affect these low frequency radio observations?
6: So the ionosphere is, it, it's like a, right, the, the, the sort of comparison you might want to draw is that you're on the bottom of the swimming pool, right, and you look up and you see, of course, the waves on the on the surface of the swimming pool, and you see right, things dancing around and being distorted. Now that's very, very similar to the ionosphere. As you go to lower frequencies, the ionosphere is not a nice and smooth layer, it's actually waves that travel around, density waves in the electrons. And as an electromagnetic wave moves through that medium, it's actually being distorted. Just like light traveling through that swimming pool is distorted the moment it reaches you at the bottom of the swimming pool. And it's not static in time, it's changing constantly. So if you don't make corrections in your data for the ionosphere you will see radio source on the sky dancing around sometimes being broken up in little pieces so we need to correct for it we call it calibration for these kinds of uh, effects so it, it, it's very similar to what the the atmosphere is doing as i as i said or a swimming pool it's it's that that sort of thing
5: and one final question um, that would have is how has the, the fields that you've been working in, how have you observed them uh, changing over the time that you've been working in them? You mentioned, I think, uh, you said you've been working on these things for the past 20 years or mm-hmm. so. Um, how, how have they changed while you've been working in them? And where do you see them uh, going in the future in general? Just you know, radio astronomy in general or the particular fields that you've been working in?
6: Well, what, what I really see happening in the last few years is that the techniques... Uh, the mathematical and the computational techniques, the modeling techniques, have really been pro- professionalized. So, whereas in the past we would, right, we would take some some data, we would make a very simple model and do a fit to it, and we would have a publication. But now computers are so strong that you can do very sophisticated things. And I also see that a lot of the techniques that come from what you these days call data science are coming into our field. We're using these very powerful techniques to model our data at a very advanced level. We're doing it statistically much more sophisticated than we used to. So I I really see that that expansion within astronomy of various, very sophisticated data analysis and data processing techniques, which 20, 25 years ago, I mean, if you go back there, is is completely different. So even the same sort of data we're taking now compared to 20 years ago would be modeled in a completely different way. And the sort of the The statements you can make based on the same data are much more powerful now than they used to be in the past. So I really see that uh, happening and almost not just in the fields I'm working in, but in every field in astronomy. Hmm.
5: Sounds really interesting. Um, So I think that's all we've got time for at the moment. But uh, thank you very much for joining us here on the Jodcast. You're welcome. And uh, good luck for uh, your research going into the future.
6: Thanks very much.
5: Thanks
2: for that, Emma. Now we come to the part of the show where we're in all those overbeats we can fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends.
0: So we've had fun scenes at Drodrell recently. The Doctor Who team have been there. They've been reshooting the final scenes of Tom Baker's final episodes for the DVD release of that series. This is for the end of the DVD, for the final episode of the Logopolis story, which is Tom Baker's last appearance as the Doctor, where he's dangling off the level telescope just before he falls to his regeneration. So in the original series they actually used a scale model of the level. They weren't able to use the proper telescope, but now they've come to re-release the DVD. They've been shooting at Jodrell and they're going to basically recreate all the scenes at the end of the series, at the end of the episode, but with the proper level, so it should look absolutely amazing. So they've been in there, they've matched up the shots of the level, and they're getting an actor to be Tom Baker, And they're just going to re-release the original story with up-to-date special effects actually using the real level this time so we've had exciting scenes at Jodrell bank in the last couple of weeks as uh, the bbc have taken over some of the observatory so this is was it 40 years since tom baker was doctor who so to mark that anniversary they're releasing a dvd of that series so the doctor who fans among us will know that tom baker went out with a bang which saw his doctor dangling off the level telescope before falling to his, well, regeneration. Now, the problem with the original series is that they weren't actually able to use the level itself due to astronomy and other stuff happening at the time. Whereas now, they're coming to release the DVD edition. So they're back at Jodrell and they're recreating the original scenes, but with the full size level. But they're getting an actor to be green screened onto dangling off the level. So basically bringing up to date Tom Baker's send off. They've also been conducting interviews with the original assistants, so that will form part of the DVD extras.
1: Okay, on 16th of February, our Earth had a guest, which is C 5 asteroid, with a speed of 32 km per hour. Its closest distance to Earth is 2.28 million kilometers. Oh, that seems like a very far distance. Yes, but in astrophysics, when we use kilometers, that means it's very close, because we normally use AUs or parsecs, So we can call it a near-earth object. And it has a size of 11 meters to 24 meters. And what is interesting is it came only one day after the anniversary of the 2013 Shelyabinsk meteor. And it has a similar size to Shelyabinsk, which is 20 meters.
0: Thanks for that, on you. One of the biggest news that we saw on
2: the web This month is the death of the Opportunity rover. Opportunity is a Mars rover. Opportunity was launched in the summer of 2003 and it landed on Mars in January 2004. It had a planned lifetime of over 90 days, but actually it lasted nearly 14 years when it lost contact. Oh, so what's happened? Actually, there was a dust storm on Mars in May 2018 So it lasted until July 2018, but we lost contact with the weather on the 10th of June 2018. As you know, the opportunity takes its energy from sunlight. So as it was shielded from sunlight by the dust, it ran out of batteries. So it went into hibernation since June 2018. They waited for a few months before calling it officially dead because there is a period in Mars called the Windy Season and the scientists were still expecting for the wind to sweep out the dust from the rover so that it could recharge its batteries and come back to life. But unfortunately, this did not happen. So on the NASA website, they say that they tried to reach the Mars rover until February 12th, but they did not have contact so they decided one day after to officially call it dead.
0: Sad times. I think I was doing some reading on this incident and part of the problem apparently is that the rover's actually heated inside to keep the electronics functioning because it gets so cold on Mars that it can actually crack and break the solder on the components. So if it's been dead for a long period of time it could permanently be damaged
2: Actually, the same thing happened to its older sibling, Spirit, which was launched just a few weeks before Opportunity, but it died in 2010 because it failed to rear end its body towards the Sun, so it
1: forced to death during the winter. So what is the biggest discovery of Opportunity?
2: The biggest discovery from Opportunity is the discovery of water on Mars. Actually, there were some speculations before, but Opportunity found that there were large bodies of liquid water on Mars around 3.5 to 4 billion years ago, and with a pH that is roughly neutral. So this is similar to conditions to Earth when life first began. Opportunity traveled over 45 kilometers on Mars.
0: That's an incredible distance. I think that I was looking at a graph and that's the furthest distance any man-made rover has traveled on any other body, including the lunar buggies in the 1960s and 70s. And that brings us to the end of the odds and ends. So now, having been forced to do this segment under duress at the last moment, here are yung Song Lee and Guillaume Voisin with Ask an Astronomer.
7: Here i I've been south of the equator recently, and I noticed that meteors seem to move more slowly there than when viewed from the UK. In the countryside, I see shooting stars which move incredibly quickly, but down near the equator, I saw falling stars which seem to move much more slowly as they came down towards the horizon. Why is this? Is it the difference in viewing angle, darker skies or something else?
8: Yeah, um, so that, that's quite a difficult question actually to answer because uh, many factors may play a role. So I will, I will try to, to, to go a little bit through the different factors I could think of, although I'm not a specialist of um, meteors in general. So meteors uh, are small bodies, usually rocky or metallic in composition, and they become visible as they are very strongly heated during their entering the, the Earth atmosphere. Um, in most cases, uh, this heating results in their vaporization, and well, what we can say is that the spatial uh, distribution of meteoroids is quite isotropic in our corner and of the solar system, and therefore the probability of a meteor like falling above the UK or above the equator uh, should be the same. Meteors are equally occurring during the day as they do during the night. The only difference is that we actually don't see them because we are dazzled by sunlight well if one becomes visible then it might mean that it is actually quite big and it might hit the ground at some point so then like yeah visible ones during the day are not necessarily good news but obviously it is very rare then what we can say is that meteors seen near the equator are not different on average than those that are seen anywhere else in the world but of course like there might be Particular occurrences that differ. So you may see like two very different meteors, uh, one time in the UK and then another time near the equator. But if you observe many in, in both places they should on average be the same. Okay, so then uh, let's see like uh, what's the trajectory and therefore like the, the speed that we can observe because it's the question that's being asked of, uh, uh, of a meteor as it enters the atmosphere. So the meteor is coming from space at a a large velocity, tens of kilometers per second typically, and its trajectory in the atmosphere will essentially depend on its initial velocity and impact angle around the atmosphere, but also on its size and composition. Its velocity in particular is at first very little affected by the atmospheric drag, but then suddenly decreases very sharply after... small time that depends on its initial size and velocity, but it can be up to a few seconds where it's almost not affected. So in fact if you look at the equations for the atmospheric drag, so the force of the resistance of the air on on the meteor, you see that uh, the trajectory of the meteor to some extent is very akin to a badminton shuttlecock. So first it goes very fast when you hit it, but then it might just end up to pathetically flutter onto your opponent on the other side of the net because it suddenly slows down. So that's kind of what happens with meteors. So thus, that means that whether you see a meteor as it just entered the atmosphere, or maybe perhaps a few seconds later, may result in observing very different apparent velocities. So the last factor here is whether you see the meteor or not, as it is not necessarily visible all its way. So if it is a small material with a soft composition, it will disintegrate very quickly, and you will not have time to see it slow down. Uh, In fact, it will probably very quickly disappear, and you will see it as a shooting star, essentially. Uh, On the contrary, if the material is large enough and hard enough. It will not disintegrate, and it will slow down to the point that it is not heated anymore and becomes invisible, ending its trajectory down to the ground in a so-called dark fall. So in this case, it might actually be one of those that the listeners saw uh, near the equator, like one that... Eventually falls very slowly when it reaches a low altitude. Well, besides, uh, it's obvious in this case that a darker sky would allow to see the meteor, as it is less hot and therefore slower. So, so you you could then it could then explain partly what the listener saw. One last thing is that the listener gives an interesting precision in his qu- or her question, uh, his question, I think. <laughs> the meteor uh, near the equator that is described in the question was above the horizon, which means that the meteor was likely far away from the observer and perhaps with a grazing angle with respect to the observer. So actually, this alone could explain that it looked very slow.
7: And then it saverly asks, if a photon of light has no mass, hence it can travel at the speed of light, why is it attracted to a black hole?
8: Well, uh, this is indeed a very puzzling question. So, I would slightly generalize it first and say, why is light attracted or bent by gravity? And there are different ways of answering this question. So, I will start by saying that the concept of attraction is essentially Newtonian. And it means that gravity is seen as a force that would act upon the trajectory of a given body. And in this case, we would consider a photon, a grain of light, if you will. In that picture, Bodies with a mass produce the gravitational force, so, for example, the Earth, a black hole, you or me, basically. Under this force, the body accelerates in a very particular way. So I will take the example of the feather and Hammer experiment that was performed by uh, astronaut Dave Scott during the Apollo 15 mission on the Moon. He released simultaneously a feather and a hammer, and they fell exactly with the same acceleration and hit the ground exactly simultaneously. So that's the effect of gravity. So why is that? Well, it's because the gravitational mass of the hammer, to which is proportional the gravitational force that acts upon it, is exactly equal to its inertial mass, which is the mass that makes a massive object harder to put into motion than a lighter one. And that's the same thing for the fever, the two masses are equal. This is called the principle of equivalence, and this principle stipulates that gravitational and inertial masses are equal, which results in all bodies falling exactly in the same way, independently of their mass or composition. So once we've said that, the question actually becomes the opposite. Why light would be any different than any other object of any mass? Well, of course, it is intuitively difficult to imagine. With a gravitational mass of zero, one would naturally think that there is no attraction at all, and independently of the fact that there is no inertia. However, if one assumes that it is possible that somehow there is a gravitational effect on the light, you you can write the maths and show that the trajectory of any object in the gravitational field is rigorously independent of its mass, and therefore it doesn't depend if the mass is zero or not and light can be bent, or attracted by a mass, even considering the 300-year-old Newtonian gravity. And actually, this light bending effect was considered long before Einstein. Well, what Einstein did, however, is, with his general theory of relativity, to resolve the conundrum between the, the attraction and the absence of mass by changing totally of paradigm. So, in the Einstein world, basically, there is no gravitational attraction. Such thing doesn't exist. Gravity, in general relativity, is a field generated by any form of energy which can be a mass through the relation E equals mc squared but which can also be light which carries energy and this field curves spacetime. Then, particles follow geodesics of this spacetime, geodesics which are exactly the same independently of one's mass or energy. The principle of equivalence is plainly respected in that case. So by analogy, Earth's surface is a curved two-dimensional space. In this space, the shortest path from Manchester to Chicago, say, goes above Greenland. And this is the geodesic between uh, Manchester and Chicago. If the Earth was flat, it would be a straight line. It would not go above Greenland. The other difference with Newtonian gravity is that the magnitude of the deviation of light in particular is exactly twice as large as what you would expect with Newtonian gravity. And this was proven initially by Sir Arthur Eddington in 1919 by observing the the deviation of light during a solar eclipse. So eventually, how does light fall into a black hole? Well, by definition, the escape velocity of the event horizon of a black hole is the velocity of light. This essentially means that unless a photon is emitted on a trajectory that crosses the event horizon, uh, it will be deviated, but not fall on it. It is even possible that light would orbit around a black hole, actually. Generally, a black hole should not be seen as something that swallows everything around. It is very much like any other star or planet, actually. Uh, Deviating objects that are too fast to be captured orbiting with others slightly slower, and occasionally being hit by objects that are too slow to remain into orbit. The only difference is that it is more compact than other other objects, to the point that even light does not escape once it has passed the even horizon. I see
7: Davison next. Typically, when we see an illustration of a binary system, such as a white dwarf and larger companion star, we see a matter being drawn from the companion star in a tightly constrained tube. I can't see how the physics of this would work to maintain stable structure as it is commonly depicted.
8: Yes, so these illustrations uh, indeed deserve a bit more explanation. So usually what one would see is a compact object such as a white dwarf, uh, which is actually not so compact but let's say that's the beginning of what you may call compact Uh, a neutron star, a black hole, uh, orbiting with a normal star, either a main sequence star or a red giant the latter is a big ball of plasma that is hundreds to tens of thousands of times larger than the compact object the plasma is attracted by the gravitational forces of the star itself which means that it remains as a ball of plasma but also by the compact object that is orbiting with it. Uh, This results in tides, very much like ocean tides on Earth, where water is being attracted by the moon, except that it can go to extremes where the attraction of both stars is equally important. So this happens in particular at a point located in between the two stars called the Lagrange-L1 point, named after the French astronomer of the 19th century. A particle dropped at this particular point in space between the two stars, would float in weightlessness, going neither towards the compact object nor towards the star. However, this point is unstable, meaning that the slightest shift from it results in the particle falling on one side or the other. In fact, this point is very much like a mountain pass, the easiest point to cross from one valley to the other, or, in this case, from one star to the other. The valleys on each side are called the Roche lobes of each star after the name of another 19th century French mathematician. These Roche lobes are the volumes around the stars where matter at rest in the rotating frame of the orbit is gravitationally bound to the star on which side it is. The compact object is much smaller than the Roche lobe, however the normal star is not necessarily so. This is particularly true when in closed binaries, the normal star inflates at the end of its life, and it becomes a red giant. Our own sum will become 200 times larger than it is currently when it becomes a red giant. So, when this happens, the star can eventually fill its Roche lobe until its surface reaches the Lagrange L1 point, and plasma starts to flow through that pass into the compact object Roche lobe. This is very much like a valley filled with water that flows out to the next valley through the lowest pass between the two valleys. This passage is very narrow and the flow can be calculated based on the equations of the gravitational field and plasma dynamics and depend on various parameters, but generally speaking, the representations that we often see of a narrow tube between the two Roche lobes through which most of the plasma is flowing actually overflowing with the star of Roche lobe is actually quite accurate.
2: Thanks for that, Yun-Song and Guillaume. George Bendo has created a pilot for a new astronomy podcast. Please send us feedback to let George know what you think and whether you would listen to this if it was a standalone podcast. Here is George's random astronomical object.
9: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of George's Random Astronomical Object. This is a pilot being recorded as a segment for the JODcast. Every episode, I'm going to run a random number generator to select random coordinates in the sky in terms of right ascension and declination, which are the astronomical equivalent of longitude and latitude. I'll then search for an astronomical object near those coordinates using the Simbad Astronomical Database, and I'll spend a few minutes talking about the objects found there and what makes it scientifically important. So now I will run the Random Number Generator. the random number generator has returned the coordinates of 12 hours, 15 minutes, 5.1 seconds right ascension, and plus 33 degrees, 11 minutes, 50 seconds declination. And this points to the galaxy NGC 4203 in the constellation Ursa Major. This is a face-on lenticular galaxy, which is a type of galaxy halfway between spiral and elliptical in shape. It has a very big sphere of stars that is bisected by a smooth disk of stars, although we see this face-on, and it's hard to see the difference between the bulge and the disk. The galaxy's most notable feature is its low-luminosity active galactic nucleus, or AGN. An AGN contains a supermassive black hole that is surrounded by gas in the disk that is slowly falling into the black hole. AGN are typical in lenticular galaxies like NGC4203, but this galaxy is located at a distance of about 15 megaparsecs, or 45 million light-years, which is relatively nearby in extragalactic terms, and which makes the AGN easier to study. The reason why this is a low-luminosity AGN, and not a brighter type of AGN, like a Seifert, is probably because the rate at which material appears to be falling onto the nucleus is incredibly slow, which is most likely because the galaxy does not contain much gas to begin with. Because the galaxy is so close, it has been relatively easy to measure the mass of the potential supermassive black hole in the center of NGC4203. The mass estimates lie between about 4 and 10 million times the mass of the Sun, which actually is about average for a typical supermassive black hole. So, observations of the AGN in NGC 4203, which seem to be exciting in an ironic way because the AGN is so ordinary, as well as observations of similarly ordinary AGN in other galaxies, are very useful for understanding the relation between supermassive black holes and their host galaxies. One of the most important relations is the one between the mass of the central black holes and the mass of the bulges in the host galaxies. This relation implies that whatever process increases the size of the galaxy's bulges also increases the size of the black holes. And understanding this is very important for understanding how galaxies form and evolve. Aside from the AGN, I can say two other things about the galaxy. First, the galaxy appears to be gravitationally interacting with a nearby dwarf galaxy. The dwarf galaxy looks very strange as a result. Imagine starting with a sphere of stars and then going into Photoshop and using the smudge function on that sphere of stars. That kind of describes what this dwarf galaxy looks like as it's being gravitationally shredded by NGC 4203. Second, this galaxy contains a ring of hydrogen gas that peaks at a radius of about 3 kiloparsecs, or 10,000 light-years, as well as an extended but much thinner disk of gas beyond that ring. The gas in the ring appears to be forming stars at the same efficiency as gas in spiral galaxies. But given that the ring does not contain very much gas to begin with, the rate at which stars are forming is about 1,000 times slower than what is found in a typical spiral galaxy. So that was NGC 4203. And if you would like to know the location on the Earth's surface that corresponds to the location of NGC 4203 as seen in the sky... It's a place about 600 kilometers roughly north of Midway Island in the North Pacific Ocean, which is very popular with great white sharks. Thanks for listening.
1: And now, on the feedback. So we've had a follow-up letter from Philip King, who sent us the solar circuit print. Philip said, it was great to hear your comments about this solar circuit poster. I'm relieved it arrived safely and that you enjoyed receiving it, just a little bit of background. Yes, it's my own design, it came about because I needed a project to test a printing method I'd not used before. I had made a sketch a few years ago which seemed like a good candidate, plus I'm a fan of Victorian circus and theatre play bios, particularly those printed in lease from around the mid-1800s. So it all came together and appealed to me as something fun to do. The print is a rhizograph, a method which has inherent to imperfections which I rather like, such as slightly uneven color, it's somewhere between a photoscopy and a screen print. I printed a short edition of 50, most of which I sent to France for Christmas, and also I sent one to Steve Nolik in Australia as appreciation for his cheap astronomy podcast. I hope you'll find a good spot for it. Ironically, I think it shouldn't be hung in full sun because I'm not sure how light fast the inks are. If you do hang it in the drugcast Studio, I'd love a big. With very best wishes, Philip King.
0: We do indeed have it here in the studio, Philip. It looks gorgeous, so it looks amazing. It lives in the studio currently, so we'll try and get a picture out to you. Once again, thank you.
1: Thank you, Philip.
0: On Facebook, we've had feedback from Teresa Arispe, who says, That pantomime sounds amazing. I can't wait to listen to it. Thanks, as always, to the Jodcast team for all of their hard work.
2: On Twitter, we have a feedback from Yoda the Oc. Oh my, the panto is a masterful epic story packed with so much info in. Don't think I managed to get half of the references. I will be sharing with all my friends everywhere. Well done, you Jodders.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net
1: or Twitter at twitter.com
2: slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast.
0: We also have a YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash jodcast.
1: Or Flickr at flickr.com slash grooves slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website.
0: Thanks to Leon Koopmans and Ben Stappers for the interviews.
1: And the editors were George Bendu, Adam Evison, Michael Wright, and Naomi Asepri Frimpong. The producers were Theona
2: Perder and Jake Stubber Morgan.
0: Until next time, George!